Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, well, if you've got a Bible, go with me to Matthew chapter 21, the book of Matthew 21. Um, Today, we resume a multiple-year study that we have been in as a church through the book of Matthew in the Bible. If you're relatively new to our church, you may not know that, uh, but we have been studying through this book on and off since about August of 2020. So a couple times a year, we take three or four or five chapters at a time, and we just work our way through the book, verse by verse, line by line. And today, we begin what, God willing, will be our next to final installment in the book of Matthew. Um, Believe it or not, I know if you've been around since then, you know it's been a while. Um, Today, or starting today, we will cover chapters 21 through 25 of this book, and then probably sometime around the beginning of next calendar year, we'll look at chapters 26 through 28, and then we'll be done. We'll never teach from the book of Matthew again. Actually, that's probably not true. Um, But we probably won't ever teach all the way through the book of Matthew uh, again as a church family. But because it has been a while since we've been in the book of Matthew, I thought what might be helpful this morning as we start off is to just sort of reset and remind ourselves of the big idea at work in the book of Matthew as a whole. And then once we've done that, I will try to connect all of that to this section of Matthew specifically, chapters 21 through 25, and and even more specifically to the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Because I think if you can remind yourself of the overall themes of the book of Matthew, it really helps to make sense of what honestly on its own is a pretty bizarre passage about some disciples stealing a donkey for Jesus. I think that'll help us understand some of the context of what's going on for the passage today. So let's start here. Uh, If you were around back in August of 2020 when we started this book, You might remember us saying then, or maybe you don't, because 2020 was a long time ago and a lot has happened since then, right? Um, Maybe you don't remember, but that's why we're resetting this morning. We said that the Gospel of Matthew, this book as a whole in the Bible, is central to this book is something that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. That's something that comes up a lot. Sometimes Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. Sometimes he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes he just calls it the kingdom. But we said that that is kind of the big idea in this book, the kingdom of God. And when we brought it up back then, we said that we could define, if we wanted a functional definition for the kingdom of God, we could define it as something like this. Uh, The kingdom of God is God's way of doing things. That's what we're talking about. When, When Jesus talks about the kingdom, That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the times and the places and the situations in the world where what God wants to happen is what happens. So, for example, when people treat one another like God would have them treat one another, that's the kingdom of God. 
When people use their money and their wealth and their resources the way that God wants them to use those things, that's the kingdom of God. When people think about and practice their sexuality as God would want them to practice and think about those things, that is the kingdom of God. And we could go on and on with examples like that because the kingdom of God is really all-encompassing. It includes every part of our world, every part of our lives. It applies to all of that. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, that is what we mean. When we encounter God's way of doing things in the world, that is the kingdom. And that kingdom is the thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else that he talked about. He, he showed up on the scene and started saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom of heaven has come near. He spent time teaching people how to live life in that kingdom, and he used stories called parables to try and illustrate what that kingdom was like. He even told his disciples to pray things like, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The, the kingdom of God was Jesus's focus. It was the focus of his life, his ministry, his teaching, everything. Evidently, a central reason that Jesus arrived on planet earth was to bring the kingdom of God to bear in greater and greater measure. That's what he thought he was here to do. Now, that might sound simple enough to you, but there's also a bit of a problem. The problem is that there are other kingdoms at work in the world as well. Quite a few of them, in fact. There are times and places and situations in our world where things are not as God wants them to be, but rather as certain people want them to be. So, so even if you don't call it this, even if you don't use this language, you, believe it or not, have a kingdom. You have a way of doing things, a way that you think things should be done in the world. I have a kingdom. I have a way that I think things should be done in the world. The Republican Party has a kingdom. They have a way that they think things should be done in the world. The Democratic Party has a kingdom. Uh, baby boomers have a kingdom. It's called Facebook. <laughs> Millennials have a kingdom where every person in the kingdom gets a participation trophy. Gen Zers even have a kingdom a TikTok-infested kingdom. <laughs> oh, that's where we got sensitive is on TikTok? That proves my point. That literally proves my point. But uh, like it or not, for better or worse, uh, every person out there and every group of people out there have a kingdom, a, a way that they think things in the world should be done. And just for you to know, it was very much the same in Jesus' day and age. In the first century, there were many different kingdoms at work out there. The Jewish people had a kingdom. The Roman Empire had a kingdom. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots. We could go on and on and on. There were different groups of people that had a vision in their head of how the world could and should look if they had their way. Those are all kingdoms, so to speak. There were competing visions in the ancient world about what the world should look like. Now, here's how all of that connects to our passage that we're covering this morning. In this section of Matthew, chapter 21 through 25, 
it's going to become increasingly obvious in the story that the kingdom of God is on a direct collision course with all of those other kingdoms. A collision course that will ultimately lead Jesus straight to the cross. So we are now in the final week of Jesus' life on earth, the beginning of the end, so to speak. And Jesus' kingdom is going to start clashing directly with all of the other kingdoms of his time. All the sparks start to fly in the story because Jesus is going to begin insisting in this section of Matthew with greater and greater clarity that he has not arrived on the scene in order to negotiate with all the other kingdoms of the world. He has not come to compromise with them at all. He has come to insist that God's kingdom is greater and better and more enduring than any other kingdom that there is both then and today. That's what this section of Matthew is all about. And I would argue that there is no clearer demonstration of that reality, that dynamic, than the passage we are covering this morning. So we're going to see that as we work through it. So with your Bibles queued up to Matthew 21, let's take a look, see what all we can learn from it. We'll pick it up in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, okay, stop. We did not make it very far, but that's okay. Because there's something you need to understand about what Matthew just said in verse 1 in order to understand the rest of what happens in the storyline. So we know from the timeline in the Gospels that Jesus and the disciples were actually heading to Jerusalem at this point in the story for a very specific reason. It was the week of Passover, and they were traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with all the other Jewish people who were traveling to the city. So the Passover, if you're unfamiliar... It it commemorated a moment in the Jewish people's history where God delivered them from the cruel oppression of the Egyptian empire. That's what the Passover was all about. The Jewish people had been enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh for hundreds and hundreds of years, and Passover was when God miraculously brought them out of Egypt into freedom. It was their 4th of July in some sense. So every year as the Passover approached, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would commute from wherever they lived across the ancient world to the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, to celebrate this particular holiday. So historians tell us they estimate that the city's population would swell from about 50,000 people to a little over 2 million people on this particular week. That's the dynamic. But it wasn't just the number of people in Jerusalem, it was also the mindset that these people were in. Because in present day, the time of Jesus, the time of this passage, the nation of Israel was once again being oppressed by a different cruel empire, the empire of Rome. And Rome kept a very close eye on the city of Jerusalem the week of Passover. So the tensions were high in this city on this particular week of the year. Imagine it like this. Picture it like this with me. Um, Just imagine for a second that a foreign nation conquered America. Let's say it's Canada. (laughs) That would probably never happen because Canadians are far too nice and pleasant of a group of people to ever do something like that. And this is Tennessee and everybody has 14 guns at their house. So it would never happen. But just for purposes of illustration, go there with me for a moment, okay? Let's imagine that Canada invades the U.S. and they take over. 
And let's say that for about 70 years after that, they are ruling and reigning over and oppressing Americans everywhere, across the nation. They're controlling us, they're imprisoning us for no reason, they're taxing us heavily and not giving us any of their incredible free healthcare as in return. Like, just all of this is happening. They're intimidating us constantly with threats and a heavy military presence everywhere we go. So it's like Handmaid's Tale, but Canadians. That's what we're talking about, okay? That's the dynamic. The Canadians have come, become our no longer nice and pleasant, very cruel overlords for decades on end. You there? Okay, now imagine in that setting that every year on the week leading up to the 4th of July, hundreds of thousands of Americans descend on Washington, D.C. to celebrate what used to be Independence Day in our nation's capital, to commemorate the day in our nation's history where we declared independence from cruel empires like the one that Canada now represents. Do you think things would be a little bit tense in D.C. on that particular week? Do you think people would be on edge there just a little bit? Do you think there would be a heavily increased Canadian military presence in the city during that particular week? Just to keep an eye on things and make sure nobody tried anything. I think if you can imagine all of that you have a pretty decent picture in your mind of what Jerusalem, the week of Passover, must have felt like. So Jerusalem on this particular week of the year is a powder keg. It is a riot, rebellion, or insurrection waiting to happen is what the city is at this moment. So now that we have the setting of this passage, let's circle back and read again in verse 1. As they, that's Jesus and the disciples, approached Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to, them, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, such as, excuse me, good sirs, why are you stealing my property? If anybody says anything to you, Jesus says, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So stop right there with me for a second. What a bizarre instruction for Jesus to give his disciples, right? Can we just acknowledge that for a minute? Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of him into the city with specific instructions to take someone's donkey, actually two donkeys if you read the story, and bring those donkeys back to him. So this could have been something that Jesus like prearranged with the owner of the donkeys beforehand. But still, if you're the disciples, aren't you a little bit nervous about picking the right donkey? <laughs> like that, that would be like Jesus saying to one of us today, go into Knoxville and you'll find a pickup truck in a parking lot. It's like, we're gonna need a few more identifying details <laughs> than that. Like, there are a lot of donkeys in Jerusalem on this particular week, especially when you consider that a couple million people just traveled to the city by donkey, right? So this is a very fascinating instruction from Jesus, but that's all the instruction they're given. Find a donkey, untie it, and bring it to me. Those are their instructions from Jesus. Now, it's here that Matthew does something that he has become notorious for. If you've been walking with us through the book of Matthew, Matthew does this a lot, like a couple times in every chapter almost, which is that he points out that what is happening in this story has a direct connection to Old Testament prophecy. So look with me at verse four. 
This took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So verse 5 there that we just read is a quote from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 9. Feel free to go read it on your own if you want to. It was a passage that pointed forward to the future king of Israel, the Messiah, who would enter into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Matthew is making sure that that his audience knows that this is a very intentional decision on the part of Jesus. So it wasn't just that Jesus' legs were tired and the closest available animal to ride on was a donkey. That's not what happened. Jesus sought out the donkey specifically and chose to ride it into the city, just as the Old Testament said that the Messiah would. In other words, this is Jesus making an undeniable claim to be the Messiah the long-awaited liberating king of God's people. Now, all of that is significant, I think, for a couple different reasons. First, because up until this moment in the story, Jesus has not been very public with that bit of information about himself, about his identity. So while he has, on a few occasions, privately confirmed his identity as the Messiah to some people, he has largely avoided telling that to the general public. But today, it appears in our passage, all of that is about to change. Here comes Jesus trotting down the streets of Jerusalem on a donkey, just like the prophet said that the Messiah would do. Jesus was making a statement that would have been unmistakable to the majority of Jewish people witnessing it. I am the Messiah, and I have arrived to establish my kingdom. That is what Jesus was saying with this action. But this is also significant because of when and where it happens on the week of Passover in Jerusalem, the the day when hundreds of thousands of Jewish people descend on the city to remember a day when God himself delivered them from the hand of oppression, right? They are all desperate and hungry for a king to come and deliver them once again from Rome to bring about the king and the peace that they so desperately need. And that is when Jesus chooses to situate himself on a donkey and enter into the city in a claim to be precisely that king. This is all intentional on Jesus's part. And evidently, the crowds recognize Jesus's actions for precisely what they are. Pick it back up with me in verse Here's what it says. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So this is the ancient equivalent of a red carpet for royalty to walk on, right? The idea is that Jesus, the king, the Messiah, is far too important, far too significant for even the animal that he rides on to touch common ground. So the crowds create a red carpet, so to speak, for him, made out of whatever they have nearby, tree branches, their own jackets, their own outer cloaks. People are recognizing Jesus' status. They're recognizing what he is saying, that he is the long-awaited king of Israel who has arrived to liberate his people, which is reinforced by what we read next in verse 9. 
the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed. So at this point, evidently quite a few Jewish people have joined in Jesus's processional into the city. Some of them are walking in front of Jesus. Some of them are walking behind him. So the line starts to blur in the story between parade and protest. You can't really tell which one is which. People even start shouting in the midst of all of this. Second half of verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna literally means God save us. Save us now. Son of David was a well-known title referring to the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A quote from Psalm 118. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Save us, the crowds are saying, from Roman oppression. Save us, Jesus. Things are getting quite rowdy in Jerusalem upon Jesus entering the city, which Matthew depicts for us next in verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So when verse 10 just said that the whole city was stirred, I think the NIV translation almost softens what Matthew is trying to say there. So the word stirred in the Greek language is the verb sio, which means to shake or shake violently. It's where we get the English word seismic, as in the word we use to describe earthquakes. In fact, just a little bit later in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew is going to use the same word to describe a literal earthquake. So when verse 10 says that the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred in this moment, it means that Jesus' arrival made the whole city start to erupt. It means what started as sort of low-grade tension began to boil over in Jerusalem into something far more. People are leading and following Jesus through the city streets, yelling things like, Hosanna, God save us. They're declaring that he is the Messiah. From all appearances, it is finally happening for the Jewish people. The day that they've waited for, Jesus is introducing himself publicly as the conquering king predicted by the Old Testament prophets, and the people are joining him in his victorious processional. It is finally time, they are thinking, for him to liberate them from Roman oppression. He is going to bring Bring about the judgment of God on anyone and everyone who stands opposed to them. Vanquish their enemies and set up his kingdom. This is the moment that all of that begins. That is why they are all yelling and joining him in the parade. They are thinking this is the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. But in all their excitement, they seem to have overlooked one key detail about what's happening right in front of their eyes. What type of animal was Jesus riding on? A donkey. Now, to most of the people in the crowd that day, that probably just seemed like it was saying that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, right? Zechariah said that the Messiah would arrive on a donkey, and here Jesus is riding on a donkey. They likely don't think anything more of it. But here's the thing about a donkey. I don't know if you've ever seen one up close, A donkey is not a very victorious-looking animal. It's not very impressive. It's not very imposing. Quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, The King James Version of the Bible actually uses a different word that I think really captures the spirit of what the word donkey referred to. But my point is that nobody rides a donkey into a battle. 
Nobody rides a donkey into a war, and yet here is Jesus, who they believe to be their conquering king, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Do you see the irony? Most donkeys are not even that big in stature, so I'm like envisioning Jesus' feet almost dragging the ground as he's riding the donkey into the city. Like it would have been a very odd sight, all things considered. The irony of all of this, I think, is made even more evident when you realize historically that this processional wasn't the only one happening in Jerusalem that week. The Roman governor at the time, a guy named Pontius Pilate, who we'll read about much later in the story of Matthew, he would have also made his entrance into the city, possibly on the very same day that Jesus made his Pilate lived about 60 miles to the northwest of the city, but on the week of Passover, he had to make the trip to Jerusalem because his job as the Roman governor was to make sure that no rebellions or insurrections could materialize that week in Jerusalem. On this very volatile week, his job was to keep the peace in Jerusalem, so to speak, but to do so through intimidation. So sometime around the beginning of the week of Passover, Pilate would have also entered the city as part of his own processional. Except his processional would have looked strikingly different from that of Jesus. He would have been riding on an impressive stallion, a war horse. He would have been flanked by the Roman military on either side, decked out in full military garb, each of them brandishing swords on their waists. This is the ancient equivalent of nations today marching their nuclear bombs down the city streets. The point is intimidation. As Pilate entered the city, it would have evoked fear in every Jewish person there for the Passover that week. The message was clear to them, do not test the Roman Empire because we have more soldiers and weapons than you do. So knowing that bit of information, do you see the contrast that Matthew is painting in this story about Jesus? That week in Jerusalem, there were two very different processionals, two very different kings entering the city of Jerusalem. Pilate from the west, Jesus from the east. Pilate on a war horse, Jesus on a donkey. Pilate with his rich armored soldiers, Jesus with his poor empty-handed disciples. Pilate with his empire of power, where the one with the most strength always wins. Jesus with his kingdom of God, where the weak are strong and the last are first. Can you picture it? Can you see the statement Jesus was making with how he entered the city? Do you see why the city was shaken by his arrival that day. So I think at least one message is very, very clear from Jesus in this passage. Rome's kingdom is not my kingdom. I stand opposed, Jesus says, to most everything that Rome is about, everything that it stands for. No one who pledges their allegiance to Rome can belong to the kingdom of God because those two kingdoms are actually diametrically opposed to one another. Jesus is saying that his kingdom is not here to make friends with any of the other kingdoms of this world. His kingdom demands ultimate allegiance over and above every worldly one that there is. That is the first message that I think we glean from Jesus' arrival. The second message, though, is just as important, even if it is a bit more subtle in the story. While Jesus' kingdom is a threat to all the other kingdoms of this world, 
it is not a threat in the way that most Jewish people were thinking that it was at the time. And I think that this is the message that the crowds that day in Jerusalem largely overlooked. They largely missed. Jesus came into the city on a donkey, not a war horse. He came in peace, not in intimidation. He came preaching love for your enemies, not violence against them. So make no mistake about it, Jesus' kingdom is a direct threat to all the other kingdoms of this world, but not because it competes with them. Not because it declares all-out physical war against them. Not because it overpowers or intimidates them. It is a threat precisely because it calls all of those methods into question. It exposes them for the sham that they are. It wages war against them, but in completely different ways than we expect. Jesus challenges every worldly kingdom that there is, but he challenges them by undermining them, by subverting them, by exposing them. If I were to summarize the meaning of this passage in Matthew chapter 21, we might put it like this. Jesus' arrival tells us that he is king. How he arrives tells us what kind of king. Jesus' arrival tells us he is king. How he arrives tells us what kind of king. We're told that Jesus is a humble king, a working class king, a gentle and lowly king, a peaceful king. Jesus is a king, but he is a king unlike any other that the world has ever seen. He is the king that Israel needed and what we need as well today. So with that, I, I want to just shift before we're done. And I want to try to answer a very important question for us, which is what does any of this have to do with us today? While all of that may be interesting, what does it mean exactly for, for us living in the 21st century as followers of Jesus? Well, to answer that, I want to take us back briefly to the crowds that were lining the city streets in Jerusalem that day. Do you remember what they were shouting as Jesus entered the city? It was one word over and over again. Hosanna. Hosanna, a Hebrew phrase meaning, God, save us. Save us now. Which to them, to the Jewish people at the time, meant save us from Rome. Save us from the external problem of Roman oppression that is causing and intensifying all of our other problems right now. We need salvation from that, Jesus. Save us from that, Hosanna. And I've got to wonder if part of the reason that Jesus didn't stop them from what they were saying and what they were doing along the city streets that day is because their request in itself was not wrong. Jesus was, in fact, a savior, and he did, in fact, come to save them and set up his kingdom. He did, in fact, come to rescue them, liberate them, but not from Rome. He came to save them from a problem far more pervasive, far more universal than Rome. He came to save them from the very power and influence of evil itself. He came to save them from the power of sin, the presence of evil in every human heart. That is the evil underneath all the other evils in our world. That is the problem underneath all the other problems in our world, Rome included. So listen, this is a passage about how sometimes 
There is a disconnect between the types of things that we want Jesus to save us from and the types of things he actually came to save us from. Between the type of savior that he came to be and the type of savior we want him to be. I have noticed the longer that I have followed Jesus that sometimes those are not the same thing. And at times, I think we all too quickly assume that they are. So I'll give you some examples. Maybe the thing that you want Jesus to save you from right now is your job. Every day, you wake up just dreading the place that you have to work, the people that you have to work with, all of that. And in your mind, if God was good and if God cared for you the way that he claims to care for you, he would bring you out of that situation. He would provide a better job for you, a better opportunity for you in place of the one that you have. But hear me out. What if God doesn't want to save you from your job? What if instead... He wants to save you from the operating assumption that your job is the biggest problem in your life. What if he wants to teach you something through your job? What if he wants to open your eyes to needs that the people around you have in the midst of your job? Maybe the thing that you want Jesus to save you from is singleness. You want him to rescue you from this bane of existence where it seems like everybody else in the world has someone and you don't. But what if God doesn't want to save you from singleness? Or bare minimum, what if he doesn't want to save you from singleness right now? What if he wants to save you from the functional belief in your life that romance or marriage would fix things for you? What if he wants to show you something about his sufficiency, his goodness during a trying season of singleness? Maybe you want Jesus to save you from the problems in your marriage. You want him to fix the the constant conflict, the constant tension and frustration with your spouse. That's your prayer right now is God, take my marriage problems away. But what if he doesn't want to save you from the problems in your marriage? What if he wants to set you free from the things in you that are contributing to and intensifying the problems in your marriage? What if he wants to bring you through the problems of your marriage and out the other side as a healthier human being rather than around the problems? Maybe you're here at City Church because of your kids. You brought your family back to church because you thought that that would make sure that your kids were raised right. Maybe having your kids in church would save you from some of the chaos and the confusion and the frustration that arises from your kids making bad choices as they get older. But roll with me here. What if God isn't wanting to save you from that? What if he has you in church because he wants to grow and mature you as a parent? What if he has you here to deepen your faith and maturity as a follower of Jesus so that you can become the one showing your kids how to follow him and make good decisions? I'll tell you one that I'm learning myself lately at a personal level. I think often I want Jesus to save me from exhaustion. I've got two young kids. There's a lot going on. There's a lot we're trying to do. I want him to provide relief 
from the exhaustion that I feel, from the frantic pace of life that I'm running, and the effects that it is having on my physical and emotional health. But what if God wants to save me from something deeper than that? What if he actually wants to liberate me from some of the unhealthy rhythms and misplaced priorities in my life that make my life more exhausting than it has to be? What if, what if God actually wants to help me combat the lie in my heart that my worth comes from my activity and my achievement and my performance and therefore through that, through freedom from that, grant me a soul level rest even in the middle of a hectic season in my life? And all those are just suggestions. Those are some common ones I've seen in people's lives, including my own. I think you personally, with the help of the Holy Spirit and the community that knows and loves you and can speak into your life, I think you have to do the work to figure out what this might be for you, where you might have the same misunderstanding. But I wonder if sometimes we just assume that the things we want saving from are the things that Jesus wants to save us from. And I wonder if by doing that, by misunderstanding that, I wonder if sometimes we end up misunderstanding who Jesus actually is. I wonder if we don't misinterpret the type of savior that he came to be and therefore the types of things that he came to save us from. I wonder if sometimes we end up convincing ourselves that Jesus will do things for us that he never actually promised to do. And I wonder if sometimes those expectations of Jesus puts us in a very similar place to the crowds of people that day in Jerusalem, a place where we are marching with Jesus down the city streets, eagerly expecting him to save us from situations that he has no intentions of saving us from. Marching towards a battle that he has no intentions of fighting, or at least not in the ways that we expect. Now, just to be abundantly clear here, Sometimes Jesus does save us from external circumstances in our lives. Sometimes that's ha that happens. After all, that's what he did with the Israelites in Egypt, right? I know people for whom God has almost miraculously saved them from things they wanted saving from. He provided a better job. He provided a spouse. He fixed their marriage problems. He protected their kids from bad choices. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes he works in those sorts of ways. But at the same time, I'll tell you something that I've noticed about Jesus. He likes to solve the actual problems far more than he likes to solve the superficial ones. I love that at one point in the Gospels, in Matthew itself, Jesus compares himself to a doctor. That's who Jesus is. He's a good doctor. He's not going to settle for giving us Advil for back pain when we are dying from an infection. That's not the type of savior Jesus is. He is going to insist on dealing with the actual problems, not just the surface manifestations of them. And praise God he does that, right? Praise God that Jesus isn't just the type of savior we want him to be, but rather the type of savior that we need him to be. All the people in the crowds that day in Jerusalem thought that Jesus was headed to face off with Rome. Praise God he was actually headed to the cross. Praise God he was en route to do something about sin and evil itself for all times and not just about their current circumstances. And praise God he does the same thing for us. 
But that realization right there, the difference between those two things, was no doubt a difficult realization for them that day in Jerusalem. It involved them reframing how they thought about Jesus, how they thought about the Messiah, and how they understood his purposes as that Messiah. And if I were to guess this morning, it will be difficult for some of us too. So as we transition into a time of response this morning, I want to invite you to just ask the Holy Spirit something with me. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. If you want, you can go ahead and put away your Bibles, your journals, your pens, whatever you had out. Feel free to bow your heads, close your eyes if that's helpful for you to do. We're just going to, we're going to bring down the lights. We're going to cut out distractions in the room as best we can. And I just want to invite all of us to do some direct dealing with God this morning. Here's how I'm going to ask you to do it. I want you to think right now about the thing that you feel like is making your life most difficult. Whatever that thing is. So maybe, maybe it's singleness, like we mentioned earlier. Maybe it's your financial situation. Maybe you don't feel like you have everything you need or everything you want financially. Maybe it's a broken relationship that you have with a friend or a family member. Something has gone wrong. Something's gone haywire there and you don't know how to make it right. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your relationship with your kids. It could be any number of different things. But what is the thing that you feel like is wreaking the most havoc in your life right now? From your perspective, what is the thing you most feel like you need saving from? And then, with that thing in mind, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit a single, simple question with me. Here's the question. God, what do you want to save me from? What do you want to save me from? What am I missing, in other words? Where where am I looking to you, God, to, to save me from something that you're actually wanting to bring me through? Where am I expecting you to change my circumstances and instead you're wanting to do something in me through those circumstances? Where am I thinking that my problems are external and you want to be more helpful than I'm allowing you to be in that scenario. And from there, God, how do you want to save me from the things I need saving from, not just the surface level things? This morning, where do we need to let Jesus be the type of savior he came to be and not just the type of savior we want him to be?